0: is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft Show. And uh, picking up where we uh, started and to uh, large extent left off yesterday... And that is the the looting and the vandalizing and the general lawlessness in Chicago, as we've seen in other cities. But we saw with um, great spectacle in Chicago on Sunday night into Monday morning. Thankfully, uh, last night was uh, relatively quiet, I think, thanks in part to the weather, even though there were some rumors that there was going to be, again, a targeted attack on commercial areas in the downtown. That did not happen. Um, Make no mistake about it, though. What did happen the night before was a organized, orchestrated event in large measure. Sure, you're going to have individuals uh, pile on when they see the unrest and the opportunity. But when you uh, note caravans of stolen SUVs, cars, U-Haul trucks, the uh, distribution of rocks and other projectiles, the focus on high-value targets like electronic stores and jewelry stores, high-end retail boutiques, branch, uh, branch banks, ATMs, pharmacies, department stores. This was uh, coordinated in significant measure online. There's no question about that. So it's uh, very much what Attorney General Barr has previously said. To the extent these things are coordinated, even in part, is the extent we need to find out uh, who is underwriting the havoc, the pillaging of businesses in big cities, the response from Black Lives Matter, the Chicago branch, uh, please make sure to memorialize this and share with all the dum-dums in your circles of influence who will walk around sporting Black Lives Matter where or reciting their agitprop. This is not about racial justice uh, on their website, Black Lives Matter Chicago on their Facebook page, I should say. Here's how they characterized what happened in Chicago. Tens of millions of dollars of damage. Two people shot. 13 officers wounded. Here's how they characterize it. Yesterday, CPD shot and and nearly killed a black person in Inglewood, south side of Chicago, and then arrested approximately 100 protesters downtown for expressing their righteous anger. Is that what was happening? The 100 people arrested were expressing their righteous anger? That's such a ridiculous statement that not even the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, or the Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox, would agree with that statement. They can't agree with it politically, even if philosophically they're coming from the same place. More flavor on this, a Black Lives Matter leader on the looting.
3: I don't care if somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike, because that makes sure that that person eats, that makes sure that that person has clothes, that makes sure that that person can make some kind of money because this city obviously doesn't care about them. Not only that; that's reparations.
2: It's a catch-all. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center, also founder of 1776 Unites, which is a uh, response to the A-Historical 1619 Project uh, profiled in uh, the Federalist, as well. The 1776 Unites campaign number one in the hit list in terms of respondents to the A-Historical 1619 Project. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Pleased to be here, Dan. Um,
2: that reaction from. Black Lives Matter. It was 100 protesters expressing righteous anger. And to the and to the extent it wasn't, it doesn't matter because uh, taking a purse from Gucci is the way people eat.
4: Yeah, well, this is just an expansion of what was started in Minneapolis, Minnesota, when anarchists in the name of Black Lives Matter joined peaceful protesters and as soon as the peaceful protesters were ready after two days and they took over at night and started burning and looting As one young lady said, that you can burn Bibles. Uh, You can't go to church uh, and assemble in church, but you can come together and burn a church down, and law enforcement will just sit back. And all of these liberal mayors in these cities have been conspiring with these lawless mobs and just being uh, really soft in response to it. If a mob is permitted to burn down a police precinct, why wouldn't they then go to burn downtown or steal downtown or, and next will be your home? And what I find most disturbing, though, is the silence from the civil rights leadership, the silence in the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, when Danny Davis uh, was on Congress was in South Carolina, was on Fox News yesterday and asked about the rioting in Oregon, he said, what rioting? Yeah, I don't know Jim, Clyburn. Yeah, right, right. Jim Clyburn.
2: Yeah, right, right. What Clyburn? I'm sorry. Right, yeah, right, right. Uh,
4: what, what, uh, and so I think again, the, their intentions are quite obvious, and it's amazing that corporations like Nike are financially supporting this kind of uh, escalation, and I, I, which is, which is flabbergasting. I can't believe that American companies would continue to support Black Lives Matter, given that they're saying that, particularly in the Black community, where are the Black church leaders, when they're saying that the nuclear family is Eurocentric and therefore racist, and that capitalism is an, is an extension of white supremacy, and faith is homophobic, in Christian faith, and they've escalated to burning Bibles and trying to tear down crosses. So I just don't know. When does righteous anger get expressed on those who say they are genuine, genuinely for social justice for blacks? Uh, when do they begin to separate themselves? And so that's the challenge.
2: And can it uh, occur fast enough to salvage some of these big cities? It's not just uh, Chicago, Portland, Seattle. Uh, Kyle Smith writing a National Review about New York. On a return visit this weekend to the Upper West Side neighborhood where I've lived for more than a quarter century, the fear in the air was palpable. The population seemed to be reduced by about half. New Yorkers steer around each other on the sidewalk, some of them walking in the street to avoid passing near a stranger. A lady declined to ride the elevator with me and my children. People are especially terrified of the subway, whose ridership is down 80% from normal levels. Just the whole idea of the nature of urban living uh, has radically changed, and there doesn't seem to be any... Uh, uh, regression back to something approximating what it used to be anytime soon.
4: No. Look at what's happening in New York also, that Mayor de Blasio uh, continues. He has moved homeless people into all of the upper the, the upper west side hotels. He's paying them $175 a day for the hotels to take in homeless people. And they're terrorizing the Upper West Side, of New York, urinating in the streets, uh, sleeping, passing out on the on the sidewalks, and, and and this is what he is. There are several major hotels Upper West Side. I mean, and he's just driving the these cities are just driving people out of them. Uh, yesterday, a um, and police are are practicing nullification because they're being vilified. The very fact that uh, it was reported yesterday that a an 11-year-old girl uh, was being savagely beaten by other five uh, five other girls, and the police were in one car length of the uh, of the fight uh, and uh, the beating and did nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a reporter there who filmed it all, and, and, and so the and, and the police arrests are down 60 percent, uh, traffic stops are down, and so there's just been a, a reaction. To what these merits are doing by the assault and at least and it's leading to chaos. Uh, you know, where where is the end?
2: And 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 where is the um, leadership if it's not going to come from the pulpit or if it's not going to come from um, public office holders? Where is leadership of 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 middle income black families with a stake in the system? Lower income black families who want a stake in the system to say, uh, this is intolerable. This is not what we want. This is uh, not what I want for my neighborhood. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, we want law and order and we want opportunity and we want all those things. We want choice for our kids in terms of their education. We don't want this anarchy. And uh, those who are suggesting we do are lying to you.
4: Well, that's why what we're doing at the Woodson center in 1776, we're working with some grassroots groups. We met with Uh, had a a Zoom meeting for an hour with 51 of these neighborhood leaders from around the country. We're offering some financial support to them uh, with funds that we've collected. We're offering um, some support to them in one group that you'll hear about. um, They have, for the past 86 days, in one of the most violent neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., a group we've worked with for over 20 years, has brought about a peace in that community they haven't had one violent incident in 86 consecutive days in that was one of the most violent neighborhoods around and so and that's because they exercise discipline and control from within they mobilize community leaders who have had enough and saying that uh that we that, that we have to confront the enemy within our communities and they're doing so but these kind of promising islands of excellence, we are working to expand them and give them the resources they need so they can expand to an area twice the size uh, of it. And hopefully uh, there are other um, islands of excellence and peace like that that we can help expand And promote
2: when we uh, when we come back. That's why I always love talking to you because we talk about these islands of excellence. We talk about success stories that can be replicated, islands that can be scaled. And uh, I want to talk about success stories you memorialized in a recent Wall Street Journal editorial. Right after the break, more with Bob Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center. at Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Bob Woodson, the founder and president of the Woodson Center, as well as uh, 1776 Unites. And uh, we were talking before the break about these islands of excellence that Bob's efforts are in part funding to expand one in D.C. where they've uh, been able to maintain peace in the streets of a certain neighborhood and working to expand that. Also, just in response to the ahistorical Marxist ideology of the celebrated 1619 project that's backed by the New York Times and the Pulitzer Foundation, I wanted, to, Bob, for you to talk a little bit about stories that we mentioned on this show uh, last week, but uh, you're a much better storyteller than I am, of black success in much more difficult times than black Americans have today in terms of any allegations of institutional or systemic racism. And uh, you wrote about two in The Wall Street Journal. One, a lot of people know about because it was made into a great movie, The Hidden Figures Women, The Mathematicians. The other, though, should be made into a movie. I'm unaware if it has been. I have missed it if it has. But The Golden 13. Tell us about... um, the golden 13 and why stories like those of the golden 13 are important
4: well first of all they played a lie to the notion that somehow current problems confronting black america is related to the legacy of slavery and jim crow it's not true and proof of that is in 1944 blacks were not permitted to be naval officers but at the insistence of eleanor roosevelt the first lady the navy chose 16 black college graduates to train as naval officers but their plan was to Wash them out by giving them in eight weeks what they gave white cadets in 16 weeks of training. When the men found out about what was happening, they covered the blankets, covered their windows in in their barracks, and they studied all night. And, And at the end of eight weeks when they were tested, they scored in the 90th percentile. And so believing that they had cheated, they then tested them individually. They scored in the 93rd percentile. In fact, they made maritime history. It was the highest scores of any graduating cadet class in the history of the Navy. Sixteen of them were trained, but the Navy only allowed 13 to be commissioned, and they went on to become successful naval officers. And so I tell that story because it demonstrates that the best defense against disrespect is performance, And that's what this story illustrates, that resilience in the face of opposition defines black America. And if we did it at a time when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. And there are hundreds and hundreds of stories of resilience where blacks have achieved in the face of great odds. And and this should inspire this generation. And America is not defined by its birth defect of slavery and Jim Crow. But it's defined by the promise in all of the wars that this country has fought. Blacks, not one black has been convicted of treason because we believe in America's promise and not being defined by America's birth defect of slavery.
2: So, uh, you know, then the the question is, how did we go from The Golden 13 to like this story out of suburban Chicago, the Evanston Skokie area, Evanston is, of course, the home of Northwestern University. The local school district, they're announcing their reopening plans for the kids. Uh, They're going to be e-learning and they're going to bring kids back based on certain priorities. Uh, Students receiving free or reduced lunch, black and brown students. So now you're bringing kids back based on their race uh, the superintendent saying we're in a pandemic. And we also know that everyone is affected by this differently, but there was a pandemic before this that was inequity and racism and classism and all of these other things. And so I just want to make sure that as we're making a decision, we understand that we're going to try to support every single child to the best of our ability. And we can't allow a political cash train to take over our decision-making regarding how we return our students to school. We have to make sure that students who've been oppressed, that we don't continue to oppress them and that we give them opportunity. Evanston Skokie is not a poor area of Chicagoland, um, and yet it's still the language of oppression. And it's also, shockingly, more than six decades after Brown v. Board of Education, it's the language of resegregation. Black and brown students, you come first, and then maybe we'll get to Latino students and then white students and then Asian students or some, some other such thing. How did we get to, from the Golden 13 to this and how do we get back to the Golden 13, but obviously in a free society?
4: Because what you've just cited is an example of left extreme, left wing white supremacy. Whites did the same thing back in, in the 40s and 20s. They said, well, blacks just don't, aren't equal. They're genetically inferior. To the genetics, and so but it's very interesting that liberal um, advocates are making the same case for the resegregation. Any black or brown child must be deprived, and so therefore must have some shortcomings. So therefore, what you've got to do is lower the bar, dumb education down. They they can't speak English, so let's dumb down English. They call it decolonization of English. But even math now is racist. Everything right. is labeled racist, and nothing is more crippling to a person and to a group to convince them that they are genetically inferior and therefore unless and until white America changes, they have no capacity to be agents of their own uplift. That's the most damaging uh, uh, message I can ever uh, think of. But they are are acting as real racists.
2: And and to the extent that we would uh, entertain proposals like that of BET founder uh, Bob Johnson, for some sort of reparations as an act of contrition, as an act of uh, racial healing, even if, even though it will be imperfect, uh, even though it is, uh, it will create some hard feelings. It's the only way we put all of this ugliness behind us and chart a better course for America. Is there any merit to uh, proposals like Bob Johnson, the proposals like the one Bob Johnson made even, uh, you know, in terms of, I think coming from a decent place, but maybe, um, sort of exacerbating the problem rather than remedying it.
5: But
4: is the purpose of reparations to heal black America or is it to punish white America? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Mm-hmm. Because giving money does nothing. Do you realize that the, the minimum wage for an NBA player is like $800,000? And a larger percent of them, maybe 70% are black. Three years after they leave the league, they're broke. If, and the same with the NFL. Black men are only seven percent of the population. They're about 70, eighty percent of the NFL. Three years after they leave the league, they're broke, seventy uh, large percentage of them. So the question is, what is accomplished? How are the interests of Black America advanced? How does reparations address the issue of black-on-black crime, out-of-wedlock births, high unemployment, health discrepancies in terms of choices of the people? How does all of the myriad of problems facing low-income blacks, not upper-income blacks, Because you cannot generalize about blacks. It is kind of a bait-and-switch game where they use the the demographic the low-income blacks that are suffering in these these hell holes in in many of the cities as the bait. And when the remedies arrive, it only benefits upper-income blacks. Most of the teachers' unions are made up of black professionals. The psychologists, all of the people who get money serving the poor, that's where the, the bulk of the anti-poverty money goes. It doesn't go to the poor. It goes to the industry that, that is on top of serving them. And, and so one of the ways to explain away why if racism were the issue then, then why in the last 50 years have low-income blacks suffering these inequities in places that have been controlled by their own people for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are questions that we can avoid asking as long as you can point to some abstract systemic racism or institutional racism, as long as you can keep that loose in the forefront. You don't have to answer those troubling questions. He is Bob
2: Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center and the 1776 Unites effort. Uh, Bob, as always, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Dan. We can drive around this
0: town And when the cops chase us around The past is gone Something might be found But it gets missed Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers is Dan Proft And this is The Dan Proft Show
2: Back to the damn prof show Chicago Tribune review of cook County state's attorney, Kim Fox's first three years Fox's case dismissal rate, 35% higher than her predecessor. The um, Chicago Tribune found that her office, this is prior to 2020 first three years, her office dismissed all charges against 30% of felony defendants. By comparison, her predecessor had dropped charges against 19%. That's significant. 25,000 plus defendants had their felony charges dismissed under Fox through November of 19 compared with 18,000 under Alvarez during a similar period. Substantial. We also find by felony category the case dismissal rate homicides Fox 8% versus Alvarez 5% Fox on sex crimes Fox 10% to Alvarez 7% seven to six on aggravated battery. And here's the big one, the big one in terms of disparity, 54% dismissal rate on narcotics cases for Fox as composed to, as opposed to 35% for Alvarez. And uh, this is uh, explained away by Fox as prioritizing resources for violent crime prosecutions with her suggesting that because of that approach, violent crime actually declined from the high in 2016, the high of the decade before she took office to uh, through 2019 until it spiked this year, the spike that's happening all over the nation. So she takes the high, which just happened to be the year before she assumed office. And then she takes credit for a regression to the mean of the last decade in terms of murders and shootings in Chicago. There is no causal link nothing that she's presented in an evidentiary way that would establish a causal link, but she's suggesting one anyway. And then she's suggesting the spike this year isn't her fault because 2020 is an anomalous year with civil unrest and COVID-19 lockdowns and so on and so forth. The homicide rate up up 24% nationally, but it's up 52% in Chicago. Yeah, except it's up 24% nationally. It's up 52% in Chicago. For more on what we understand uh, about crime, as well as race and crime, because that's certainly part of the conversation. We're pleased to be joined by Vincent Heronam and Rob Henderson. Uh, both are Ph.D. students at the University of Cambridge. Vincent Harinam, a law enforcement consultant and research associate at the Independence Institute, and Rob Henderson, who's a Cambridge scholar at the University of Cambridge, as well as being a Ph.D. candidate. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks,
3: really appreciate
2: it. You guys uh, looked at... Um, a race as it comes, as it pertains to allegations, sort of going in a multiple directions during this era of arguing about uh, white privilege and. You know, who is privileged and who's a victim, who is the oppressor and who are the oppressed and so on and so forth. And um, as we're thinking about uh, so much of this being forced through a racial prism in terms of analysis, and this is leading to the defund police, this is leading to remove police from schools that we see happening, that we see happening. This is leading to, well, police chiefs like Carmen Best, a black woman in Seattle, resigning because she can't do her job in the climate in Seattle. What were some of the what were some of the, the takeaways from your research about uh, race, about white privilege, about oppressor and oppressed, this narrative that is being uh, kicked around so much?
3: Well, I suppose the main takeaway was that race in, it, in and of itself is not the main explanation for differences in group outcomes. A lot of these activists, uh, progressive, otherwise they, they like to promote it as being the only explanation for why these differences occur. But what we found is that there are a bevy of factors as to why these differences exist. Uh, one is geographic determinism, personal responsibility is another one. We also have family structure and finally culture. So these are these together are a, a better explanation for why groups differ on a very a variety of, um, of of indices, economics, uh, uh, crime, so on and so forth.
2: One of the one of the specific. Um... Uh, points I, uh, that, that I took away from your research was uh, about family. And so, again, there's set-aside race and just talk about family structure and how uh, impactful that is in terms of socioeconomic status.
3: Right. So back in 2010, I remember Barack Obama coming to Chicago and stating that young black males, or just males in general, that grow up without a father are far more likely to end up in prison, far more likely to, to not have a job, and far more likely to not graduate high school. So family structure is a massive factor which determines the success of a child and the way in which a, a, a family succeeds. So uh, the increase in single motherhood from the 1970s and, and even before then uh, to today has played a dramatic factor or, or played a dram- has a dramatic impact on on uh, rates of crime and such.
2: When we come back with University of Cambridge PhD candidates Vincent Harinam and Rob Henderson, I want to uh, get your reaction to some recent Gallup polling from last week on on black Americans and their perspective on police protection. We'll start there right after that.
0: Ooh, dream I believe you can get me through the night. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: back with Vincent Heronam and Rob Henderson and gentlemen, a at Gallup poll from last week that finds 80 percent of black Americans want the same level of policing or more policing where they live. Uh, New York Times report out yesterday who opposes defunding the New York Police Department. These black lawmakers and they went through uh, New York City lawmakers speaking on behalf of funding the police because Gosh, I don't know. They must have looked at uh, research uh, criminologists like uh, you all have done research of Roland Fryer at Harvard and found that uh, you remove police from neighborhoods that have uh, a endemic violence problem. All you do is create more black victims. And so that's not something that we want to do. We want police there. Uh, We don't want police to abuse anybody, but we want police there. So so there's this massive disconnect between what people who don't have voices that are amplified actually believe and want versus those who are generating all of the headlines and really distorting the dialogue about these topics.
3: Yeah, I I think that's completely correct. And I would posit that the reason why this is, is because. The individuals that are claiming they want uh, or that are vying for police to be defunded are not exactly people that live in these neighborhoods. So I I read out a survey somewhere or a um, polling data that indicated that something like one sixth of all the protesters in in Minneapolis were were, uh, were black. And the vast majority of these individuals are whites that do not live in these neighborhoods. And so they don't necessarily have a vested interest. The safety of, of these communities—they they don't share the lived experiences of, of these, of these uh, typically uh, black individuals.
2: Yeah, right.
6: I something here. Yeah. So, so the, the economist uh, Tom Cole—he's an African American scholar at the Hoover institution So he's pointed out that, uh, yeah, in many of these cases, you know, defunding the police or or um, trying to reduce uh, the amount of police patrolling uh, certain like poor neighborhoods—these are not these will primarily affect the poorest people in those communities, the people who are not committing crimes, law-abiding citizens in these poor neighborhoods. Um, they will be the ones who will suffer the most from people who are not, uh, from the people who, who tend to target innocent individuals when there aren't police around. Um, you know, to go back to your question about, like, who's who's pushing this, well, there was an interesting survey reported by The Atlantic a few months ago showing that, you know, progressive activists um, were, you know, among all the sort of political groups in the U.S., political uh, progressive activists were overwhelmingly more likely to be white, to uh, earn more than $100,000 a year, and to hold postgraduate degrees. And so many of these people who are, who are advocating for defunding the police and for these sort of radical far-left um, platforms they are sort of the most privileged and advantaged people in the U.S. It's kind of ironic that they're invoking like privilege when oftentimes they themselves are the ones who kind of hold these um, you know, these
2: privileges. Yeah, it's uh, you talk about privilege. Uh, I mean, forget the uh, economic privilege—the privilege of being in a position where you can so distort the discussion and influence policymakers that you treat other people as uh, lab experiments, other neighborhoods, other human beings as lab experiments. There was one instance I, I've read of uh, the, that profile of person actually doing the lab experiment in their neighborhood. And this was Powderhorn Park uh, right outside Minneapolis. Uh, you know, a bunch of white leftist 60s refugees that uh, decided they were going to effectively do uh, no longer use police. They were just not going to call police if there was some sort of confrontation, incident, crime. They were just going to work it out amongst themselves. Uh, that was a catastrophe. Uh, as the New York Times, of all places, reported all of the problems and all of the uh, champagne socialist, all those sentimental barbarians outside Minneapolis that got mugged by the reality of uh, trying to you know, talk their way through uh, a predatory situation. And uh, uh, and so there's one case study out there. But boy, I I wish we could uh, make those who are advocating that philosophy, you know, force them to live out their experiment in public view the way that Powderhorn Park chose to so that we have real good compare and contrast sort of like, you know, the various approaches to COVID-19, because uh, the way that we approach uh, violent crime uh, can be sort of viral in nature as well, can't it?
6: right right you know that's interesting so i was I was actually talking to someone who um you know it's less the center person who grew up in affluence and we were talking about sort of social class differences and she told me that she had recently um read a book called educated um you know this young woman who grew up sort of poor and then later went on to college and whatnot and so this editor this person this, this affluent person was telling me you know in that book um so many of these people experience uh physical injuries you know, working in junkyards or working with metal or, or you know, repairing cars and whatnot. And she said, look, like, I had never known that, you know, injury was such a big part of people's everyday lives. I don't think I've ever experienced a physical injury in my entire life, or no one i had ever known had experienced these kinds of injuries.
7: And to me, this is sort of one
6: example of this disconnect of, you know, when you grow up in in this sort of uh, affluent bubble and, you know, you're always, you always knew you were going to go to college, your parents went to college, you grew up in, 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 in a sort of uh, well-off neighborhood. You have no idea what the experience of, you know, everyday people who, who you know, didn't grow up in the same neighborhood as you, what, what that's actually like. And so these people who are advocating, you know, deep on the police, we don't need police anymore, we can just talk to each other. These are people who have never actually been hurt in any real way in their whole lives. And these are the people now who wield the most influence in society. This is very dangerous.
2: Right. Never, never been heard and also never been told. No, they they've been taught how to be ignorant moralizers. And um, and, and, and that that certainly uh, is the recipe for stilted discussions to let ignorant moralizers drive policymaking. And, and that seems to be seems to me where we're at. Uh, he is Vincent Haranam, a law enforcement consultant, research associate at the Independence Institute, PhD candidate, University of Cambridge, with Rob Henderson, a Gates Cambridge scholar and also PhD student at the University of Cambridge. Uh, uh, I'll tweet out some of their uh, work product uh, that uh, has been posted on Colette.com as well. You should follow these gentlemen. Vincent and Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
3: Thanks a
0: yeah. I just hit the right on. This is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome
2: back to the show and uh, thinking about our conversations this hour with Bob Woodson, as well as Heronam and Henderson from University of Cambridge. This piece from Jason Whitlock at Outkick. Hear a dog whistle? It's LeBron and Democrats exploiting George Floyd the way Republicans exploited Willie Horton. Now, the one thing that Whitlock doesn't mention in his piece comparing um, George Floyd to Willie Horton as a political artifice is that, yes, Willie Horton was used by George H.W. Bush against Michael Dukakis in the 88 campaign. But it was actually before it was George H.W. Bush, it was Al Gore who used Willie Horton against Dukakis in the 88 Democrat primary. And that's how H.W. came upon the story of the uh, man that Michael Dukakis had furloughed and who went on to commit uh, horrific crimes uh, on furlough. Uh, anyway, uh, Whitlock. George Floyd is the star of this election cycle. James and NBA players want to make Breonna Taylor a black Louisville woman killed in a failed police drug sting, Floyd's vice presidential running mate. It's all divisive racial politics devoid of truth. Racial politics stops us from discussing police brutality in an honest fashion. Politics is the enemy of truth. And LeBron James says embrace of politics has put me at odds with him. Uh, Jason Whitlock. Uh, characterizes himself as a Christian. First, he goes on to say in this piece, I'm not a Trump supporter. I do, however, oppose the point of view that Trump is any more or less of a problem for black people than any of the 44 previous presidents, including the black one. Uh, That's my parenthetical remark. The framing of Trump as an anti-black lunatic is the kind of political ploy that keeps me out of the voting booth. Trump is no more black people's problem than Willie Horton was white America's problem. In January of 2017, he recalls, does, Jason Whitlock. Uh, He appeared on this radio program, articulated his concern that LeBron was in the process of jumping the shark politically, campaigning for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and the like. Five months later, during the NBA finals, I have forgotten about this, but yes, it is very curious. LeBron claims someone spray painted the N-word on his Brentwood, California mansion. He offered no proof. He bizarrely compared himself to the mother of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old boy brutally slain in Mississippi in 1955 for allegedly whistling at a white woman. Spray paint on the gate that James and his family never personally saw somehow was analogous to the pain of a mother losing her child to murder? Politics is the sworn enemy of the truth. James has far more in common with Jussie Smollett than Emmett Till's mother. Ouch. But Whitlock's larger point is well taken. He goes on to say, George Floyd, only Twitter could turn George Floyd into Rosa Parks. Floyd did not deserve to die under the knee of Derek Chauvin. Floyd also does not deserve hero worship. He shouldn't be used as a device to control black voters and demonize white people who disagree with Democrats. Precisely. I was talking to a guy who went to St. Olaf up in Minnesota, set up a George Floyd scholarship fund, ostensibly for the purposes of raising money to provide scholarships to black students to attend St. Olaf. I'm all for opportunity scholarships in any form they take. But the idea of elevating George Floyd was George Floyd, a heroic figure uh, or a victim of a crime. Being a victim of a crime doesn't make you a hero. I mean, you want uh, George Floyd to be someone that your son emulates. I think Whitlock's spot on as he has been really, really good over the last several weeks amid all of this, um, you know, wildly hysterical, and, of course, ignorant uh, racialization of our politics. And, um, yeah, i got to tell you, politics is the sworn enemy of the truth. I didn't used to believe that, but, uh, Whitlock, but what I'm seeing, plus uh, Whitlock's assessment, starting to move me in that direction. This is Dan Prax. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Just follow us at danprofshow.com on social media at Dan Prof Show. And uh, we're uh, pleased to be joined now by Theodore O'Dell senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. He's a retired physician, uh, psychiatrist who most recently practiced in a British inner city hospital and prison. Uh, excellent piece. I mentioned earlier, uh, I guess yesterday, or that would be earlier in the week uh, in a new criterion that called the, uh, entitled The Choleric Outbreak by, uh, by Tony. And in it, uh, he uh, sort of um, uh, updates the uh, Descartes, uh, the Rene Descartes uh, observation that I think, therefore I am. 2020, I'm angry, therefore I'm good. For an explanation of that, we're pleased to be joined by Tony DeRuppel. Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
7: Thank you. Thank you for asking me.
2: I'm angry, therefore I'm good. Uh, that is the, uh, the mantra of uh, the, 2020, the Western world in 2020. Uh, explain um, why you think so.
7: Well, because uh, people think that if they are angry at something, even if it doesn't really affect them directly, or even if they don't really have a very clear idea of what it is that makes them angry, the anger itself shows that they're generous-minded, uh, and and so on. So they think they're good. It's a sci- uh, and they don't actually have uh, many outlets for goodness. So uh, so anger is uh, anger, and uh, having the right opinions uh, makes them good.
2: And, you know, uh, you've written about this too, the the um, psychology of anger uh, in, in you, in part, I think, uh, reprised, if I'm remembering correctly, in this piece that I just referenced, the new criterion yeah. where you, you talk about how um, uh, unhelpful, actually, the uh, forays of studying the psychology of anger ha- have been a psychology in, in an academic sense. Why yeah. do you why do you think that?
7: Well, I, I think that uh, psychology, most of psychology, puts a kind of distorting lens between uh, the way people think about themselves and what they're really thinking. Uh, and actually, much, what is much more important is uh, uh, undistorted reflection on oneself. So, if I, I may take the, the case of anger, I, and I'm speaking uh, about myself. I don't know whether any of the listeners will have had the same experience. When you get angry, after a time, of course, the anger tends to subside. uh, But you try to keep it going because, actually, you realize you're enjoying being angry. And and then the anger becomes not anger about the thing that originally caused it, but a source of pleasure to you, and therefore, of course, bogus uh, or humbug. And so there's an awful lot of humbug or uh, cant in the present wave of anger in my opinion
2: yeah you know it's interesting you say that there's this piece in the american mind by uh, an oan uh, news correspondent about his time in the uh, the occupied uh, territory in the center of seattle uh, before it uh, was returned to the city um and he uh, he he points out that uh, this crowd that uh, he amassed uh, that that amassed and that that he was a part of Uh, There there was some talk about uh, destroying a statue of Abraham Lincoln, but actually there were several people that were part of this, uh, this uh, milieu that weren't, that didn't want the statue destroyed altogether, but they sort of weren't uh, providing any, any pushback. They're just sort of like there's, there were differences of opinion actually within the whole occupying crowd, but um, those who did not seek the destruction we're uh, essentially subordinated to those who were interested in, in tearing down statues and otherwise engage in violent behavior. They, that the, the more angry and the more willing to act on their anger sort of won the day. And I just wonder about how you assess the sort of the psychological dynamic of that sort of group of that sort of group discussion.
7: Well, when you have something like that, you can always be out, outflanked by someone who is more angry than thou, as it were and therefore more righteous than thou. Uh, So the person who is angrier than you claims to feel more deeply than you. Uh, And therefore the temptation is always to go along with uh, the person who expresses anger. And if you want to stand out, you have to express even more anger. So it's a kind of uh, positive uh, uh, feedback uh, mechanism. Uh, or, if you like, an arms race of anger, and he who is most angry and most willing uh, to be destructive is the person who is uh, the most genuine.
2: It's almost, I mean, and and I guess you would say, and the most self-indulgent. It's a race to see who can be the most self-indulgent.
7: Well, I think it is a form of self-indulgence, and to me it's a pretty obvious form of self-indulgence but the human mind is a complicated instrument and we can hide things from ourselves if we don't uh, stop to reflect. Um, uh, Dr. Johnson said that uh, he who, he used the phrase, he who will examine the, the motions of his own mind. And this is what people increasingly don't do. And they're help not to do it, I think, uh, by the academic uh, study of psychology.
2: You, uh, this was reminiscent of another piece you wrote uh, recently uh, that we discussed about, about fear in the face of COVID-19, and there was yeah. sort of this, uh, this uh, same sort of psychological effects, self-indulgence. It's fear of something that there doesn't present real risk, and so I can sort of celebrate my fear and moralize about the protective measures that should be taken out of the fear that I'm spreading because I'm conquering something that I don't really that that really is limited in terms of its risk to conquer me.
7: Yeah, well, and you can also see it that uh, that people uh, now have um, I think they don't really have any underlying sense of a purpose outside themselves, um, and this is one way of getting a
2: purpose, a
7: transcendent purpose.
2: And uh, you also write about um, sort of the sanctimoniousness of it all and and the self-righteousness, the moralizing that is attendant to all of this, whether it's statues or mask wearing or what have you, and uh, you uh, write that self-righteousness never lets you down. Uh, What do you mean?
7: Well, you can go on being uh, very self-righteous for the whole of your life. There are very few emotions that can actually last. Uh, self-righteousness is one, and, and uh, resentment is another. Often they go together, of course, resentment and self-righteousness. In order to be resentful, really, you have to have a certain degree of self-righteousness. And these, you can keep them going forever, and they have... Uh, certain, Of course, they have certain sour satisfactions, but as a way of engaging with the world, they're, uh, they're not merely harmless. They're actually harmful.
2: And, and so, I mean, so is, at what point does, <laughs> do some of these expressions uh, become a shared delusion uh, about uh, even what's real, much less what's right? Well,
7: uh, Well, it's very difficult to say that. I mean, a delusion is a fixed false belief, which is uh, impervious to uh, uh, evidence or argument. And I'm not quite sure they go quite as far as that, because I think many people are, they have a still small voice somewhere saying this in the back of their mind, So this is what I surmise, I can't actually prove it, that they know that they're being bogus really i mean i when i i know that when i'm being angry i mean i might be angry to begin with and then i as i say i have this still small voice telling me uh, come off it you're uh, you're not being uh, genuine or sincere anymore
2: and, and so i but, but but i mean and I, this is a, a, a bit theoretical i'm sure, but but i mean it, it, can you get people uh, off a position that they haven't come to logically with logic?
7: Uh, well, I think you can probably get some people. Uh, uh, but as uh, you know, there's a wonderful book uh, by Charles Mackay, which I think was published in 1844, called Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions right. and the Madness of Crowds. And he said that uh, people can lose their heads all at once uh, but they recover it uh, one by one. So it's a rather slow process.
2: He is Theodore Dalripple, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, retired physician who most recently practiced in a British inner-city hospital in prison, and to check out his piece, which I'll tweet out at uh, the new criterion, the choleric outbreak. Uh, Theodore Dalripple, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
7: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. Attorney General Bill Barr with uh, Mark Levin on his uh, Fox show on Sunday night. Good chat that they had. Barr um, speaking about how politics has changed from his first spin as attorney general to the current one. So over the last 30 years. And uh, what exactly the Democrat Socialist Party is in 2020.
1: You know, in the old days, you could have friends across the aisle. You know, politics was part of your life, but it wasn't all consuming. It wasn't everything. You could, you know, have communications and so forth with others. But it's now become all consuming for many people. And I think what's happened is that the left wing uh, has really withdrawn and pulled away from the umbrella of classical liberal values that have undergirded our our society since our founding nowadays you have i think the left has essentially withdrawn uh, from uh, this model and really represents a rousseauian revolutionary uh, party that that believes in tearing down the system they're not interested in compromise they're not interested in dialectic exchange of views they're interested in total victory and that's it's a it's a secular religion it's a substitute for a religion they view their political opponents and they uh, you know as evil that because we stand in the way of their progressive utopia that they're trying to reach that's what gives you know the intensity to the partisan feeling.
2: And uh, Chicagoans are grappling with the Rousseauans they elected. It's just difficult to find that ideal state of nature pocket uh, that Rousseau talked about. So popular with the Jacobins of his time, he was. What's a neo-Jacobin in Chicago to do since Rousseau was invoked? I figure we better talk to a philosophy professor. And so we're pleased to be joined again by Jason Hill, professor of philosophy at DePaul University, author of the book, We Have Overcome, Jason, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, I think Bill Barr is uh, getting to something important, and the invocation of Rousseau and the uh, hearkening back to the French Revolution was clearly purposeful. But it's uh, wrestling, those buttoned-down Rousseauians in public office versus those uh, more freewheeling Rousseauians on the streets. Difficult for one to reconcile with the other. they got a problem.
8: I think Barr is being way too kind rousseau at the time of the writing of the social contract was writing for a very homogeneous swiss canton it presupposed an agreement on a set of values on a set of mores and norms i think what we're seeing today is nothing like the Rousseauian social contract what we're seeing is systemic nihilism we're not seeing the far left going after any kind of a progressive utopia we're seeing them going after the destruction of values for the sake of values we're seeing them going after Anarchy, pursuing anarchy and nihilism. So I think uh, Attorney General Barr is being way too charitable, shall I say, to the vandalists and the looters and the rioters and the nihilists that we see in the streets today.
2: And so uh, what the uh, nihilists are using today versus, um, you know, the, the Marxists of a bygone era rather than class from the bygone era, it's identitarianism. It's uh, it's mainly race. It's not exclusively race, but certainly since George Floyd, it's been mainly about race. And you should say with the police at the top of the hit list because of the historic issues between police and black Americans, legitimate issues in the past, much less legitimate today, in the present in terms of the argument that police are systemically racist. But that said, so it seems to me that the cultural Marxists of today you're arguing are not really even Marxists at all. They're nihilists who've latched on to race as the way to foment the most destruction, the way to exacerbate and drive the most anarchy in the quickest way
8: possible. That's right. And they want to smash the system, destroy the system. I'm not sure they have any idea of what to replace it with. I'm not sure they, they themselves know what to replace it with. But if you listen to the mantra, if you listen to, like, for example, the, the, the read the Charter of Black Lives Matter and the, the Constitution, if you want to call it that, it's just a sort of creed, a crude creed a cause of the destruction of all banks the breaking up of u.s corporations the destruction of capitalism with nothing to replace it really it's a destruction for the sake it's like obstreperous children on a beach that just kicked down sandcastles for the sake of kicking down and destroying sandcastles with no no incentive to rebuild what other children have built but i want to say something in the name of political correctness, we, looked, we saw last night the mayhem that happened on the Gold Coast in Chicago, where uh, a lot of stores and storefront properties were destroyed. And in the name of political correctness, the police refused to exercise the full force, the full legal onslaught of its force against citizens because, paradoxically, it's afraid of being accused of brutality. So now we have, we have crippled, we have paralyzed, We've compromised law enforcement to lawfully exercise what it needs to do in the name of justice by preventing these feral thugs, these primordial barbaric uh, nihilists, from wreaking havoc on the wonderful city of Chicago. I know, hijack and, oh, no, and refuse to exercise the full weight of law enforcement.
2: But, but let me let me uh, let me suggest something and get your reaction to it. That on the, the one yeah. hand, you have the Clockwork Orange Brigades, OK, the, the nihilists, the anarchists. On the other hand, you have the coordinators, those who uh, had uh, the U-Haul trucks uh, at the ready, those who had uh, rocks and other projectiles to throw at police, uh, both uh, last night in Chicago and in rioting and lawlessness we've seen in other major cities, Portland, Seattle and other places. Um, so, you know, you've got the organizers, the founders of Black Lives Matters, the Alicia Garza's and the Patrice Cullors. And then you've got, you know, the random dope who throws on a T-shirt and thinks he's doing something important. It seems to me but, that you do have ideological neo marxists cultural Marxists, And then you've got uh, an assortment of of, uh, you know, go along, get alongers. Uh, you know, ill-informed as social justice warriors, and then these nihilists that you're talking about. But but you re- really do have an ideological movement afoot, and and it's pro- it's pro- it's been provided safe haven in the Democrat Socialist Party.
8: Right. I think that's right. Uh, and I think I think the people who come with the do trucks and the looters and rioters, those are the kind of you know the, the let's call them the ideological social ballasts. These are people who are like vultures. They're parasites who sit around waiting for any kind of opportunity to unleash their either homicidal or their criminal impulses. Um, and without the sort of, you know, antifa and the Black Lives Matter movement and the the, the postmodern nihilists and the real ideological organizers, these people would be bereft of a, a, a venue, uh, short of just like the ordinary everyday criminal. They'd be bereft of a legitimate venue to unleash their criminal impulses. So you always have those sorts of people who will just join, take advantage of any kind of, of, of opportunity to unleash their criminality. And I think those are just what I call the scragglers The mm-hmm. people you know, that's like the shop windows with the safe of brick shop windows and grabbing a TV screen.
2: When we come back with DePaul University philosophy professor, Jason Hill, I want to get your reaction, Jason, to something that uh, Bob Woodson wrote in the Washington Examiner about the challenges that black Americans face today. We'll pick it up right there after this.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: We're back with DePaul University philosophy professor Jason Hill and Jason. Bob Woodson, our mutual friend, wrote recently in the Washington Examiner this. Today, the challenges facing black America are worse than the conditions of slavery. Wow. Slavery imposed an external boundary. Today, blacks are being held back by the internal bondage of the belief that their destiny lies outside of their control and that until and unless white America grants what is demanded, life will never improve. So react to uh, Bob's diagnosis of the problem and the extent of the problem with black Americans generally in America and also whether or not America's future will run through the decision black America makes as to whether or not they want to go the direction Bob Woodson and Shelby Steele and people like you are advocating or whether they want to go the identitarian way that that will ultimately determine what America looks like.
8: Right. Well, I'm not a, a historical determinist, so I won't you know, people have a choice to think or not to think. I think Bob's I don't agree with Bob's assessment, assessment that black are worse off than in slavery. There is nothing more nefarious and evil and uh, restrictive than, than chattel slavery. and And we do have. There is no monolithicity among Blacks today, and we do have a number of Black Americans who are exercising their freedom and exercising their creative agency. I use myself as evidence of one such person, and I'm not a a minority in this case. There are a number of people, Black Americans, who who are exercising their creative agency and their freedom uh, in in, in fantastic and wonderful ways. Um, I think what is going to happen is that... um, the culture wars are going to be so divisive that black Americans are going to have to make a decisive choice to break with movements like Black Lives Matter who do not speak in their interests or for their interests or in their names and realize that in the long run, such movements like the postmodern left, like the far left um, and the not so far left really, and Black Lives Matter, are really meant to use them as pawns and hijack their identity for really truly mysterious purposes that are not in their economics, their existential, and their moral well-being. But I can't prognosticate. I mean, that's a choice that people have to make uh, for themselves. But I think, I mean, I respect Bob's position, but I think that's sort of a high Type of bullet.
2: Well, um, but, but, I that. Okay, but, but to the point that decision, I mean, you're, you're essentially agreeing that, that we're at the, that that black America is at this crossroads and they have to make a, There's got to be a decision made. And I know it's not monolithic, but my uh, and individual decisions. But the idea is that where the weight uh, of the black community goes in which direction, the identitarian direction or the self-empowerment, uh, entrepreneurial, free thinking direction that will determine the fate of America, the fate of this uh, experiment in democracy. Is that
8: is that hyperbolic? No, that's not hyperbolic. And to the extent that we, we, you know, whether it's a a Democratic government or Republican government, to the extent that we cut these welfare programs and we we sort of break the the economic dependence of blacks on the state and stop treating blacks like infantilized um, morons and treat them as full fledged citizens and full-fledged adults, and force them to accept uh, responsibility for their lives and accept appropriate choices that they make for themselves. They may have, I mean, black, majority of black may just have to be 74% of, of children in the African-American community are born out of wedlock and about 60% of those are born into poverty. Um, so, you know, so long as the fiscal choice, the, the policies that are made do not, in some sense, um, cater to dependency, uh, then Blacks may have no choice but to sort of disambiguate themselves from identity policies and realign themselves to the to policies of, of um, to, a, to a philosophy, shall I say, of self-reliance. Um, but so long as you have parties, both the left and the right, in some sense, that cater to uh, Blacks as children and treat them as wards of the state, I see no incentive for Black Americans uh, except, you know some who are self of course, sort of self regarding, to dissent to, 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 to sort of decentise themselves from the dependency on the state. Or to, to, to remove themselves from dependency on the state. So Along with there exist these sorts of policies. And yeah.
5: um,
8: so in that sense Bob is probably right. But to sort of say that it's the same it's it's worse than slavery, I I think that's a little bit too extreme.
2: He is Jason Hill. He's a professor of philosophy at DePaul University, author of We Have Overcome an Immigrant's Love Letter to America. Jason Hill, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it.
8: Thank you.
0: exposing political fakers fixers and takers he's Dan prof and this is the Dan prof show
2: welcome back to the show P- picking up off our conversation with uh, Paul University's Jason Hill and uh, mentioned this uh, last hour in a conversation with the uh, a criminologist and, and PhD candidates at University of Cambridge about to, Kim Fox, the Cook County state's attorney, uh, Cook County state's attorney as a matter, as it pertains to the non-prosecution culture that she has advanced in Chicago. The same one that's being advanced by similar Soros back state's attorneys and district attorneys in San Francisco and Philadelphia in New York city. And um, I wanted to go through a little bit of her press conference yesterday Because because it's sort of an anatomy of a cover story. And uh, I'm sure even if you're not in Chicago Metro, you'll appreciate this because politicians probably somewhere near and dear to where you are uh, engage in the same sort of rhetorical artifice. Kim Fox uh, starting out with, uh, you know, where where she is the subject of, of some blame shifting happening from politicians in City Hall saying, well, you know, you need to keep these violent repeat offenders off the streets in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. She of uh, Jussie Smollett fame, not doing her job. They didn't go quite that far, but certainly the insinuation was there from the police chief and the mayor. So uh, she does a, a solidarity kumbaya. We all need to work together in sort of, you know, the same kind of bromides you get on a Hello Kitty wall calendar. Uh, that's what she traffics in, which a lot of politicians do in moments where there is dissension and lawlessness and a loss of control or even the appearance of it and the feeling the public has that maybe the people elected to represent them are a bit out over their skis. What do you fall back on? We're all in it together.
3: Of our neighborhoods that I'm sure I am, like many people, are heartbroken, angry, confused as to how we find ourselves here. And the reality is, is that as we seek to figure out what is happening in what is truly an unprecedented summer, it requires us to ask tough questions, to do deep deliberation, and to put all hands on deck. All hands on deck means that rather than standing and pointing fingers, we work together.
2: Right. You know, you point a finger for pointing back at you and so on and so forth, yawn, ask tough questions, have honest conversations, don't point fingers, work together, Uh, take out your carpet squares. It's nap time, kindergartners. That's what you get from these politicians, particularly in big cities where it's the worst. You get the most sort of patronizing pre-K patois from the political hacks. And that's what Kim Fox is. Where are all those celebrities now? Your celebrity friends, Michelle Obama, Oprah, and I mean for both Lightfoot and Kim Fox. Affordable bail. Bail reform. New York City, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Chicago. What does that mean? Sounds good. Bail reform, part of criminal justice reform. Who's not for reform? Well, what form does it take? What's the form of reform? That's what matters. And um, the Chicago Press Corps made the mistake of trying to engage Kim Fox talking about data, you know, sort of uh, uh, antiseptic macro data, specific cases. So she can't squirm out of the specific decisions and the implications of specific policies that she advocated, like bail. Here's the bottom line. She has tried, uh, you know, alternatively to argue that Her reforms resulted in a decrease in crime in her first three years in office compared to 2016, which is the uh, year of the most shootings and the most murders in Chicago in the last decade. It's artificially picked. What's actually happened since 2016, you've had a regression to the mean of the number of murders and shootings on an annualized basis throughout the decade. But she's trying to take credit at the same time when it comes to issues like bail reform, which she backed in legislative form to allow it to become statutory at the same time. Hey, 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 you know, judges set bail, right? Judges set bail based on largely on the recommendations of prosecutors. But Kim Fox wants to play it cute because she is a non-prosecution ideologue, non-prosecution ideologues. That's what the mayors and the uh, attorneys in so many of these big cities are. And they have to Give you what you heard from Kim Fox as the smokescreen so you don't see through what's actually happening. You don't see clearly what's actually happening, that they are willing to sacrifice your safety for their ideology. That's what's happening. Don't believe me? Just this year, in addition to the data we went through earlier in the show, a Chicago Tribune expose that finds uh, a that 30 percent of all felony defendants have had their charges dismissed under Kim Kim Fox's Cook County state Attorney, one in three felony arrests, charges dismissed, and that's only through the end of 2019. That doesn't even include this year where we've had a 52% increase in murders in Chicago year over year. Give you a couple of examples of the affordable bail program that she supported that was backed by the Cook County chief judge, backed by the political power structure in Chicago, the same way it is in New York with uh, the Sandinista mayor, de Blasio, and in, in San Francisco and Philly and on and on. Kendale Isom. On March 25th, he grabbed a chunk of loose concrete from the curb and hurled it through his girlfriend's living room window. He was charged with misdemeanor counts of battery, resisting police, criminal damage to property, released on, from custody on a recognizance bond. Three hours later, he returned to his girlfriend's house with a gun and fired three shots at her as she stood in her backyard. Thankfully, he missed. Now he is charged with first-degree murder, attempted first-degree murder, and being held without bail. Kavarian Rogers arrested in April of last year for attempted armed robbery. Prosecutors charged him with felony armed robbery with a handgun initially held without bail. But five months later, his bail was reduced to 50 grand. He posted a five thousand dollar bond to be sprung. Four months later, he received five thousand dollars to shoot and kill 18 year old Treha Kelly because she had recently testified in a murder case. And these are the same people saying, hey, if you know something, come forward We know, you know, who committed this murder, who engaged in that shooting. Come forward and tell us. Oh, come forward and tell you so that you can release them and they or their friends can come kill me. I mean, there are uh, a dozen of these cases just this year that were nicely documented by CWB Chicago. So it's the rhetoric of working together. We're all hurting, you know, emoting for us. I'm in emotional solidarity with you, papering over their malfeasance. Their ideological myopia with sentimental pap. That's what these politicians are doing. And that's the reason you're not safe in so many big cities in America. This is Dan Prof. The
0: more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: Welcome back to the show from uh, moralizing on looting and general lawlessness from uh, politicians like Cook County State Attorney Kim Fox to now on COVID. Good piece in Bloomberg by Tyler Cohen, George Mason University economics professor. The coronavirus moralizing has to stop reckless impatience about what to do is what led to bad government policies in the first place. Right. The knee jerk lockdowns. The coronavirus moralizing is suspect it might be better to ignore COVID-19 analyses accompanied by moral judgments of political leaders or systems. It might be. Actually, I think uh, to the extent that President Trump in his most recent iteration of COVID-19 briefing has been scripted and long on the facts and short on the editorializing, I think it served him well. You take away important facts that tend to induce a little bit more thoughtfulness and restraint, clear headedness. Like at yesterday's briefing, when he talked about the spikes that we saw in Arizona. And Florida now declined. That's all helpful to tamp down the hysteria. And it allows Trump, if and when he wants, to start framing this a little bit better. Not about who did the best job, about where we're at, what we're doing, why we're doing it, where we are trying to get? And also, you know, a choice that you have to make. Forget the, the language of the wonk or the politician, what is sustainable and not sustainable. Lay out what we know to be true from all the data that's been amassed, all the experience that we've seen, all the input from experts and say, look, there's some risk here. Of course, there is. This is a real thing. And it has been devastating to many individuals and by extension, their families. But unfortunately, that's part of life, those risks. And there are risks on this other side, too, when it comes to your livelihood, your quality of life, your children's intellectual development, your and your children's mental health. Uh, all of those things need to be contemplated. So think about what kind of life you want to be able to live. You want to be able to choose to live in a free society uh, rather than just uh, giving way, ceding your autonomy to mask holes and politicians and uh, the expert uh, strata. Right. Tyler Cohen you know, points out what we continue to not know when we make these snap decisions Kosovo seemed to be doing a decent job against COVID-19 early on. Now the death count is spiking vertically. Japan was a model early on. Now they're experiencing a second wave far worse than its first. Doesn't mean that a year from now, as we look back on all this, Japan won't have done, done it as best as anybody else. But that's where we're at right now. The Swedish experiment. Clear mistakes were made initially, such as not protecting their nursing homes well enough. Early deaths. But both cases and deaths have since fallen to a very low level, even though Sweden never locked down. In the meantime, the Swedish economy has been among the least badly hit in Europe. In the U.S., the most deaths by far have come in New York State and surrounding areas, mostly controlled by Democrats. It doesn't necessarily follow Democrat rules to blame, but just as just as one shouldn't accept Paul Krugman's repeated insistence that Republican states are handling the crisis much worse, which is untrue. And it's not Republican-Democrat, it's the substantive policy choice, like as it pertains to nursing homes and reintroducing the infected. Cohen concludes the temptation to moralize is one of the strongest human prop- propensities. When we feel it, however, we should recognize that it stems from the same kind of reckless impatience that worsened our response to COVID-19 in the first place. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Get ready for the Biden stock boom. Yeah. Biden gets elected. It's um, happy days are here again. Not according to Ed Finn, former editor and president of Barron's. This is uh, about as strained an argument as I've heard since we interviewed our friend Jimmy Pethacukas from the American Enterprise Institute a couple weeks ago, and he was so um, beset with Trump's derangement, he was making an argument similar to Ed Finn, stunningly, really. Over a four-year Biden term, writes Ed Finn, there's reason to believe that the total return on stocks, including reinvested dividends, will average about 10% a year as they have for nearly a century. It's even possible U.S. investors will enjoy an annual stock return of 15% or better. So uh, that argument Trump's making about uh, your 401ks, don't sweat a Biden presidency. Ed Finn does concede, yes, there are threats. The main threats that Biden poses, increased regulation and higher taxes. Also, boosting corporate tax rates by a third, from 21% to 28%, that uh, is not pro-growth, uh, would put a dent, writes Ed Finn, a dent of about $130 billion in corporate profits each year. Uh, another tax proposal would uh, trigger a sell-off, and that's boosting the capital gains tax from 39.6% from the current 20% on income of more than a million bucks. However, here's where it all washes out, according to Ed. If a Biden, President Biden, can control the federal budget deficit, well, that's funny. If he can forge better relationships with America's trading partners, if he can reverse some of President Trump's anti-immigration policies and bring a more congenial atmosphere to the beltway, there's no reason to think during his term average annual stock returns can't be in the 10% range. Given Biden's ambition, ambitious plans to use the increased tax revenue to fund more spending on green energy, healthcare, and infrastructure, it's conceivable he could spur the U.S. economy enough to push annual stock returns to 15%. Sure. Government spending, that's what um, fuels investment and growth. Okay. Well, let's um, check out Ed Finn's work with um, somebody else in the market space, and that is Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and entrepreneur, proprietor of brantz in palatine illinois jim thanks for joining us appreciate it thanks for having me uh so is uh, ed finn does he got that about right
5: no he doesn't and, and okay before i tell him why he's wrong well say if he made the argument and this goes for jimmy as well And jimmy jimmy's a friend of mine and i i believe his heart's always in the right place if they said to me that's similar to the Obama uh, presidency, that the government would be increasing regulations, increasing tax, and the Federal Reserve would have no choice but to counterbalance those incompetent economic policies with free money for the entire time. The stock market could do okay. I mean, that's what we saw for an eight-year period during Obama. But if you want to look me in the eyes and say that increasing regulation – jumping up the tax rates of corporate America is going to be good for the stock market, which is a glimpse of corporate America. It's comical at best.
2: Not to mention the industrial policy piece of it, uh, the government making all these investments in green and infrastructure. You can understand why some people are confused, because that's essentially what the government has done with uh, Tesla in allowing Tesla to exist parasitically in part off the profits of other car companies in addition to... The generosity of the U.S. taxpayer through the subsidy of electric cars. Um, so you say, well, there you go, the Tesla model, and look at that—that that has a bigger market cap than uh, the, yeah. all of the uh, automakers combined, all the American automakers yeah. combined. So that's—we just need to replicate that in all across sectors, and then it'll be um, a chicken in every sure. pot.
5: Sure, we'll win. No, and and I wish we could just say it was just Tesla. And I know you're just giving that as one example of government spending money. But if you're going to tell me just for a second that the government's going to make investments that are going to be better than free market capitalism making uh, investments, it's absurd. It's silly. And it brings. I know you mentioned the capital gains tax before, and I know it's being knocked around that it's potentially being lowered. And that's one of the reasons the stock market is relatively buoyant today, along with the news out of Russia of a potential vaccine. But the capital gains tax is kind of exactly what we're talking about here every time that particular tax rate is lowered, tax receipts from that tax go up, not down. And Barack Obama knew that. He admitted it. He acknowledged it in a 2008 debate with Hillary Clinton where that statistic was given to him, and he said it's not a question about raising tax revenues. It's about fairness. fairness well, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what the heck that means, but fairness. I want the if, – if, the, if you believe that the government needs to pull in tax money to do the things that they want, infrastructure, and this is completely independent of MMT. I know I'm rambling here for a second, but hopefully I'll be able to pull it all together. I know that's completely independent independent of, um, you know, new modern monetary theory, but it's just, wh- why do you want to have a punitive government? And then to me, then the Fed comes in and zeros everything out and makes free money and creates this bubble bust economy like we've seen twice in the last 25 years.
2: You pulled that together nicely. Way to stick the landing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. yeah, yeah. you were a little, you Little shaky, but yeah, you stuck shaky. the landing. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, and, and by the way, just to before we get to uh middle income tax r- relief, what the president uh sort of uh, uh, hinted at yesterday, along with the uh, capital gains cut, and I think he's just going to do everything unilaterally now, now that the Roberts Court has allowed him to do so. Wait for a future president, maybe him, to undo these executive orders somehow, some way. But payroll taxes, so the payroll tax suspension for incomes under 100000 uh, the executive order, one of the executive orders he signed on Friday, that was pilloried in part by uh, Biden and the left as, you know, you're bankrupting uh, Medicare and um, Social Security, which, uh, of course, by the way, are not solvent to begin with. The payroll tax can't finance either one of those, but that's a secondary issue. Joe Biden, uh, Chris Jacobs uh, over at the Juniper Research, a good piece in the journal as well. Joe Biden, Joe Biden and wife Jill. Thirteen point three million dollars in income from book royalties and speaking fees. Uh, they uh, run ran their uh, speaking fees and book royalties through an S corp rather than uh, treating them as taxable wages, and that allowed them to avoid about seven hundred fifty grand in payroll taxes over the last two years. Ninety five percent of their uh, they circumvented the payroll tax and ninety five percent of their income. Uh, one tax expert told the journal that Biden's scheme was pretty aggressive in terms of uh, uh, payroll tax avoidance, and so Trump's suspension is uh, of of the payroll tax. The minimum, the maximum payroll tax is is like one two hundred fiftieth of the amount that Biden's avoided in twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen, according to the tax returns they released. So again, here we have the. The, the champagne socialist uh, do what I say, not what I do.
5: How dare you? How dare you suggest that there's some hypocrisy among these people? That's absurd. I mean, clearly there's not. He told us. He wants to pay more taxes and he wants people to pay more taxes and he's glad to do so. I get in this argument all the time at, at, at cocktail parties. And I don't even, you know, that I consider myself a, a conservative, a huge conservative. I don't even like to say Republican. However, when we have this discussion at cocktail parties, when a Democrat bends over backwards and even potentially illegally avoids taxes, in my mind, it's far, far worse than a Republican does it. A Republican looks you in the eye and says, Yeah, I don't want the government to have more money. I don't want the government to have more of my money. They're poor stewards of money. So if I bend over backwards for tax- Tax avoidance, nothing illegal, of course. I personally believe that's fine. When a Democrat does it like that, it is, it's is—it's the height of hypocrisy. It's always do as I say, not as I do. And it's even like, I don't know if you saw the Robert Reich thing, who's, you know, Robert Reich was a, a big voice on the left. And part of the thing he was talking about was... Um, was, you know, being able in neighborhoods, you know, not having a neighborhood that's, you know, I'm doing quotation marks, a rich neighborhood be able to move housing in there. And then they, they pulled out a letter that he had wrote to a homeowners association that was complaining about historic house being torn down. And again, it always comes back to do as I say. Th- these rules are for me and you, Dan. They're not for Robert Reich and for Joe Biden. So right. let's get that straight.
2: Uh, I want to get your reaction to uh, AOC, a noted economist. She is oh, my favorite. She yeah. has uh, weighed in on this. She thinks that she's a little upset with Andrew Cuomo, America's governor, because uh, he led the nation in the amount of COVID-19 deaths that occurred on his watch. So he's America's governor somehow. She says it's time to stop protecting billionaires, Governor Cuomo, and pass a billionaire's tax billionaires need to cover the 13.3 billion dollars uh in the new york state budget shortfall from covid and it has nothing to do with their management of the state it's all covid related it's all billionaires fault and they need to pay that's only fair as aoc fam- has now famously said billionaires need the working class the working class doesn't need billionaires
5: oh gosh Okay. Well, here's what she's missing. And whoever, who was it, by the way, said the only thing is unavoidable is death and taxes. I always forget who said that, but it it doesn't really matter because I think the left has it in their head that you impose a tax and then the person you impose the tax on pays the tax. I think they forget about the fact that billionaires have unbelievable amount of choices. Okay. When Detroit back in the 70s, Whenever, when, when there was green flight and all the money left Detroit is because they started taxing the heck out of people and they moved outside the city limits. Now, if you don't think New York, that's gonna, you don't think billionaires can get on a plane and be done with that city and just come and visit? That, that, it's absurd. It, it's an absurd notion. And, and everything that comes out of her mouth, like I think she can't say anything more dumb, and then I'm surprised the next day. Uh, it, it's, and it doesn't make me, like, mad or angry. It just makes me sad that people believe that and, you know, Bill de Blasio as well.
2: He is Jim Urio. He is a proprietor, the proprietor of Brant's in Palatine, an excellent restaurant. And he's also a CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks as always for joining us.
5: Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, guys.
0: See Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Thanks for uh, joining us again. I had a fun chat with Jim Urio at the top of the hour. Uh, Now, this for your consideration. A um, poignant op-ed from Karen Karaskini in uh, American Thinker with a fun Greek mythological reference. Starving the Minotaur is the uh, the, uh, title of the piece. Reference to the labyrinth. Uh, the uh, Roman poet Ovid's treatment. Uh, We conservatives, quite the enigma, she writes. On the one hand, we shake our fists at the Beelzebub's of Antifa and denounce their lawless barbarism. On the other, we demand that government schools stay open so we can send our children to the leftist factories that produce the very Marxists we loathe. We make our young people the targets of the socialist weapons of mass instruction and then bemoan the loss of patriotism among our youth. Are we self-destructive or simply daft? Maybe neither. Perhaps we're fearful. As products of the school system, first letter caps, ourselves, we have been conditioned to believe the only people qualified to teach our children are those who hold government credentials. Yes, we have a vested interest in our children and love them in a way that a government employee cannot. And yes, we see them for the individuals they are rather than as one of the dozens of kids in Mrs. Peabody's class. But teach them. Is that even possible and then uh, she goes into the stats on homeschool kids and how they outperform their private and public school peers on standardized tests and so on and so forth. Of course, that's possible. Uh, I don't think with our listeners we need to get uh, too deep in the weeds there. It's not only possible, it happens and it happens to great success. But that doesn't mean it's accessible to everybody, if you will. She uh, argues uh, that and she goes through the social, you know, the socialization canards to, oh, they don't participate, activities impact. Homeschool kids tend to participate in more extracurricular activities than their peers in private and public schools and so forth. If it's not socialization, that's not the issue. Maybe it's finances that keep us slavishly chained to government schools. If so, it may come as a surprise that a good education is far more affordable than teachers unions would have us believe. Yeah, it doesn't cost twenty grand a kid per year. We don't need to pay for buildings and a school nurse. We just need a Bible, a library card, a math curriculum, and a Latin curriculum. I can personally vouch for the efficacy of this uh, approach to schooling. My children do exceedingly well on standardized tests, she writes. But it's more than that, much more. My kids spend their school days in the corner of the world where Jerusalem, Athens, and Rome intersect. From reading Esther's Mordecai, they have learned that they are to prostrate themselves before Almighty God, not Amun's henchmen. From Homer, they have learned that the unbridled anger and seething resentment of an Achilles can bring down a nation. So, uh, you know, then she goes on, the languages they study, the... Uh, western canons and so forth you know she's on top of it miss karaskhani is for her kids and good she also recognizes the challenges that people face she writes still i won't deny that there are those among us who face economic hardships some folks genuinely need government schools to help provide daycare and meals for now it seems they are destined to languish in public schools but maybe we'll help to free them one day Maybe we'll raise money to provide scholarships for private schools, or maybe we'll start schools of our own. We put a man on the moon. We can figure this out. In fact, we are figuring it out around the country, as I'm sure she recognizes. From tax credit scholarship programs in places like Illinois to school choice that's been in force in Milwaukee for three decades to uh, the school choice program at the state level in Indiana, which reaches middle income families and many other such examples, tax credit scholarships in Arizona and Florida, many other examples. We are figuring it out. People are starting new schools that are steeped in the classics. We are figuring it out. Um, Of course, it's not enough. It's not enough to provide a parachute for every kid and family. But perhaps that's where we should be spending our time rather than trying to get these totalitarian reeducation camps reopened like L.A. families are doing coalition of California parents, not just L.A., California statewide, suing the state on grounds that poor and special needs children are receiving inadequate instruction during the shutdown. Well, shouldn't they be making the couldn't and shouldn't they be assuming for the same reason when school was open is the point based on the general performance of these huge urban centrally planned command control school systems. Right. Uh, In uh, the the, uh, teachers union in L.A., pressured the district to limit their members to four hour workdays and to give them the choice of opting out of live video instruction. That's. For the fall in Chicago, in the spring, nearly half of the district's elementary schools logged into the virtual learning system less than three days a week. So what are you getting the schools open to do? Right. Right. So Miss Kraskini suggests the time for a mass exodus from government schools is long overdue. We can defund the liberty loathing teachers unions. All we have to do is walk away. It's that simple. We have that kind of power. The lefties can't indoctrinate our children if they aren't there to be indoctrinated. Nor can they undermine the family unit if families are far from their crosshairs. You don't need a legislation. You don't need legislation or a government plan. We just need to stop feeding our children to the Minotaur. Get out of the labyrinth. Hmm. We conservatives, quite the enigma. She writes. Yeah, it's true. And by the way, you know, uh, they're not fond of you looking in at what they're doing in these, uh, well, what I just said, totalitarian reeducation camps. I used to just apply that moniker to so many colleges and universities, but now it's equally applicable at the K through 12 level, isn't it? This uh, Twitter thread from Matthew K, who's a teacher at the uh, the Philadelphia Science Leadership Academy. I mentioned it, I think in passing in yesterday's show, let's mention it again, just to, Help accentuate the point that uh, Karen Karaskini is making in her piece in the Thinker, American Thinker, Matthew K. So this fall, virtual class discussions may have many potential spectators—parents, siblings, etc. In the same room, we'll never be quite sure who is overhearing the discourse. What does this do for our equity/slash inclusion work? Uh oh, the secret's out. How much have students depended on the somewhat secure barriers of our physical classrooms to encourage vulnerability? How many of us have installed some version of what happens here stays here to help this? No, oh, Vegas for Marxists. What happens here stays here. He goes on. while well, conservation uh, conversations about race are in my wheel has to remain a concern in this no walls environment? I'm most intrigued by the damage that helicopter slash snowplow parents can do in onver- honest conversations about gender and sexuality. Yeah, you don't need parents gumming up the works, right, Matt? It seems to me, uh, Miss Karaskini is, uh, you know, on the crab to borrow a line from Mike Rowe on my one of my all time favorite shows that uh, this is a time where people should be looking for ways to get out rather than for ways to break back into these schools. Shouldn't it? Shouldn't they you know, put themselves back in the uh, proverbial crab pods to borrow another deadliest catchism. We conservatives are quite the enigma. On the one hand, we shake our fists at the Beelzebubs of Antifa and denounce their lawless barbarism. On the other hand, we demand government schools stay open so we can send our children to the leftist factories that produce the very Marxists we loathe. Let's stop living that paradox as best we can and be full-throated advocates for not just federal resources through any COVID relief program for private schools, for scholarships, as the president uh, promised in his, uh, well, in the Senate Republican version, the $105 billion for school reopening with 10% of that for opportunity scholarships. But fighting at the state and local level to uh, provide the same, provide the resources that provide the same choice for those that don't have the means to have options, to give them the means to have those same options as the wealthier, as the Champagne Socialists said. That's where our effort should be right now. This is Dan Proft.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Our uh, friend Lionel Shriver writing in The Spectator about uh, COVID-19. Never has a virus been so oversold. Why I'd like to sign on with COVID's agent. What a publicity budget. And she uh, looks at polling that is reminiscent of uh, this is several years back, but it's still on point. What percentage of people do you think are gay in America? It was Gallup or Pew Research that did this. And essentially, uh, the median response was 25%. 12x the actual number of uh, gay people in America. Why were people so far off the actual number? Because people don't read, they don't think about that in terms of breaking out uh, cohorts within the population. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Also, because gays are wildly overrepresented in terms of their percentage of the population in media. Entertainment and so forth. So that explains it in part. In a recent uh, CNC poll, British respondents, as British respondents estimated nearly 7% of the British population has died from coronavirus. That would be four and a half million people. Right now, it's like 45,000. So, you know, off by a factor of 100. That's significant. Scott supposed that more than 10% of the UK population had died. That would be 7 million. Americans believe COVID had killed nine percent of their compatriots. Right. Shriver. That's 30 million people. The real total, of course, is uh, about one hundred fifty five thousand. And so what does that say? It says, in part, uh, to her point, how hyped and oversold uh, COVID-19 is. And so people lose a sense of proportion, in this case, of the threat or of the presence of the representation in the real world. And uh, they're willing, because they have lost a sense of proportionality, to do things that are mainly for theatrical purposes, for psychological purposes, not physiological purposes. And that brings us to uh, our next guest. She is Carol Markowitz. She is a columnist for the New York post and contributor spectator USA, as well as Washington examiner magazine, Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
9: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Uh, You wrote about uh, some of the uh, performance art uh, that surrounds COVID-19 that I was describing generally uh, as you witnessed it in New York. And do you sort of agree is that the handle that this is for psychological purposes, mainly because of the frenzy the media has whipped up and not physiological ones.
9: Oh, absolutely. And I think we've completely lost control of, What people understand about the virus. A few days ago, New Zealand was a success story, and then today there's a a new outbreak in New Zealand. Now, it's a small outbreak, but New Zealand's also a very small place, and it's an island really in the middle of nowhere. So the idea that we can control a virus by staying indoors is just something that's not true, and I don't think that People understand that. I think that they think that we can lock down this thing away. And if we all just stay inside for a year, that it'll disappear, but it won't. It's a virus. It spreads. It's contagious. So we have to learn how to live with it and how to survive with it and how to keep people safe with it. And I don't think we're doing that at all anymore. I think we've gone completely off the rails and we don't understand what it's all about. Right. Um, we're,
2: we're moving from a mass now to Tony Fauci raising the specter of face shields. I mean, I think we're about 60 days away from full body condoms.
9: Right. Well, maybe. But, you know, I, I wrote a few weeks ago about how a lot of the rules make no sense. So people wear masks. I mean, in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, it is near 100%. Everybody wears a mask in the street. So as they pass each other where there's almost no risk, everybody's masked. But then they get together with friends and family and they take take off the mask in close proximity. They take off the mask to have dinner you know, where it's obviously risky because you're talking and eating and drinking. And I'm not saying that we should be wearing masks 100% of the time, but I am saying why are we wearing masks in places where it's not contagious and not wearing them in places where it is? And I don't feel like people get this. I think it's a really poor sign of our leadership on every level that people don't seem to understand that you're not going to catch coronavirus as you walk by somebody on the street. You're just not.
2: Well, right. I mean, to, to, yeah, right. The, what they don't understand about the transmission, what they don't understand about the data, which uh, right. it, also, too, it's this it's this, you know, sort of rush to make snap judgments on countries or states on a on a daily basis uh, today as you said new with new zealand uh, first japan was a model of the world now that japan has a right. second wave why didn't they lock down altogether and so on and so forth sweden is a catastrophe yeah. no it's not a catastrophe yes it is a catastrophe i mean just this back and forth and then that prov- provides the uh, basis to do this whack-a-mole with lockdowns which is so destructive both intellectually and economically
9: absolutely and you know i think that we've gotten to the point where I think most people can acknowledge that Sweden handled it correctly. And we did not. The two weeks to lock down to flatten the curve. I mean, I think people feel really lied to about that and and not just on the right. I think there's a misconception that it's only conservatives feeling this way. It's everybody. I have liberal friends who are like, I was told it was two weeks. Why has it been six months? And it's really all across the political spectrum that people feel lied to. And that's a really tough thing also because they won't believe the government again in the future. And um, you know they won't take direction like this again. And yeah,
2: I want to. I want to pick know? it up. I want to pick it up right there about uh, you know, on a go forward basis. How do you sort of reestablish rationality, if that's even possible? More with Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post, contributor, Spectator USA, and Washington Examiner magazine. Right after.
0: good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post, contributor to Spectator USA and the Washington Examiner Magazine. and We were talking about um, You know, the government's loss of credibility, the experts loss of credibility, it seems to be a recurring story uh, across sector over the last several years, in part, uh, arguably led to the election of Trump in 16 may lead to his reelection in 20. We'll see. But um, how do we reestablish any baseline, any standard, Carol, when there has been so many things that they've been wrong about, um, sort of uh, sanctimoniously wrong about? There's uh, there's this mishmash of arguments that are completely politicized about it's Republican states that are handling it bad. It's Democrat states are handling it bad. uh, And and then it just becomes everybody goes into their partisan camp and it's hard to have productive conversations. Is there a way to reestablish, you know, uh, what we should do that's sensible, what we've learned from the last six months that should inform what we do in the next six months?
9: I don't know. I, I really don't have a lot of hope for that. I think your your example of Sweden is a perfect one. I mean, you can find news stories calling Sweden a success and you could find news stories calling Sweden a disaster. Um, another one is that whether or not kids can spread it, you can find news right. stories saying kids can't spread it, you can find news stories saying kids are the major spreaders. Um, and it's really a, a tough place to be when experts are are giving stories to news outlets that are reporting basically two completely different stories. Um, I, I don't know how we go forward from this. Another example that I always I've been using is the, the Fauci throwing out the first pitch. You yeah, know, yeah. he's on the mound wearing a mask 60 feet from somebody. But then he sits down in the stands with his friends and his wife and they take off the mask to eat and drink. And they're sitting next to each other. The mask is on. The mask is off. I mean, none of that um, sends a clear message of when mask use would be best. And. I think the, the jumble of information is a giant problem. I don't know how we get out of it.
2: Well, also too, just the obsession with masks where it really I mean, in terms of the the peer reviewed double blind uh, studies. I mean, there really is no benefit on the, the cloth or the surgical masks, particularly when you're, you know, putting it in your pocket, putting it on a table, yeah, putting it back. Right. I mean, it's just it's all right. theater. We're not
5: wearing the right. And, yeah, and so we're
2: absolutely. and so we're obsessing about something that's really beside the point rather than focusing on things yeah. that are on point. But it seems to me the, the fundamental problem and you were sort of getting to it is the standard for resumption of some stability and approach is impossible because the standard is basically zero cases, cases, not hospitalizations, right. not that somebody gets infected in a school at a, in a summer league at a theater camp and everything shuts down.
9: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, what's going to happen uh, in a lot of places with schools. I think we're just so afraid. And uh, one case will shut down a school district um, instead of just the classroom or, uh, you know, the cohort. So I, it is really concerning going forward. I don't know how we're going to handle this, um, you know, in the future. I don't think COVID-19 is the end either. I think we might have COVID-23 and COVID-25, and et cetera. I don't know um, what we're going to do if we don't learn from our mistakes this one.
2: Well, and, and also, too, I mean, and, and it's been folded in by Fauci when he was talking about face shields the other week uh talking about uh, the flu season too uh, it's not just, maybe the face shields not just for covid-19 going forward but also for flu season well again if right. it's, if it's one kid gets infected or one kid dies uh you know unfortunately w- yeah. from flu from flu or from covid then w- what's the difference in terms of shutting down as we know influenza seems to be more uh, impactful in a negative way on children than covid is
9: right i yeah we need some sort of Strategy here, and I just don't see it from our elected officials or our health professionals. It's kind of crazy that we're this far into it and still have no idea what's going on. I was I was at a restaurant the other night that um, had space out outdoor restaurant, but had space between tables uh, next to each other, but then diagonally they were really close together, <laughs> as if the you know the virus can't travel diagonally. Um, right. So you know I don't know what we're doing, and I think uh, a, a lot of Americans feel like that.
2: And so uh, the the decision by Andrew Cuomo a somewhat surprising decision to uh, green light reopening of the schools. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. he's just as susceptible to teachers union pressure in New York as uh, the politicians in Illinois and and California and elsewhere Mm -hmm. um, who, who are making different decisions.
9: Yeah. Well, see, the thing is, I think a lot of people don't understand is that Cuomo saying that schools can open does not mean they will. Um, In Mm -hmm, fact, I think mm -hmm. he he could have said schools won't open, and that literally meant the schools won't open. But he cannot open schools. Um, He is not, you know, the teachers. uh, He is not the mayor um, or the school boards, and he is he can't actually open the schools. He could just um, give them permission to open, which is what he did. Well, but, but, so I think but, he kind of funded. but, de, yeah.
2: but, de, but de Blasio in New York city going with a hybrid model. That's the, something right. the teachers unions has have rejected in Chicago and LA.
9: Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's hopeful. Um, it's more hopeful in New York, but again, we had, it ran through our population already. We had 32,000 deaths. We, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's our, our numbers are extremely low because so many people died already from it. Um, so, I, you know, I still don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful. Obviously, I have three kids. I would love for them to go back to school. I My bet, though, is that schools don't ultimately open. I think the teachers' union pressure is just going to get to be too much and mayor de blasio and governor como are very famous for hating each other and for disagreeing with each other on <laughs> right. purpose um so i could see de blasio ultimately siding with the teachers unions and not opening schools i mean i hope to be wrong about this i hope you know to be on your show in september saying oh no i was totally wrong about that but i i just don't see schools opening
2: is there is there any uh, effort maybe, um, and you were talking about this in terms of uh, frustration being across the political spectrum in New York City within mm-hmm. um, your circles, and that's encouraging actually, yeah. But but, um, you know, it, it, st- I was mentioning this last hour. Stop using the politicians and the policy wonks language of sustainability and just point, what kind of life do you want to live in a free society mm-hmm. and, and what risks are you willing to take? Do you, here's make sure you have an understanding of the risk so you can do an right. assessment and then make a decision about the kind of life that you want to live. It seems to me maybe if we sort of funnel the discussion there, maybe we get somewhere.
9: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to put it. Um, And I think the Sweden model, again, I think that might be the way to go where people social distance and they kind of take their own chances. And people who are at high risk are isolated. And that might be the better way to go to protect those people.
2: She is Carol Markowitz, columnist for The New York Post, contributor to Spectator USA and Washington Examiner magazine. And uh, we'll check back with you next month to see if... uh, you were yeah. right or wrong on schools. We'll look forward Thank to that. Thank you. Carol, thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. Take care. You can
3: do magic. You
0: can have
3: anything that you desire. Magic.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof The Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. And I wanted to close uh, by uh, providing a little institutional memory as we're wont to do on this program. Before uh, we had Jason Hill join us in the second hour, uh, DePaul, philosophy professor, played a clip from Attorney General Barr with Mark Levin over the weekend on Levin's Sunday show on Fox News, talking about the Rousseauian Revolutionary Party uh, that is the Democrat Socialist Party in 2020 America. And the nice thing about Barr is he's not just a skillful attorney. He's also an intellectual, and uh, it called to mind his distillation of what's happening now, particularly on the left, what he was predicting and what he was describing happening, uh, the road that they were already on back at the end of last year when he gave a talk at Notre Dame on the importance of religious liberty in large measure. And he made a couple of key points about America's founding, which – Boy, there's no time like now to revisit that, given the assault on American history uh, currently underway.
1: In a free republic, those restraints could not be handed down from above by philosopher kings. Instead, social order must flow up from the people themselves, freely obeying the dictates of inwardly possessed and commonly shared moral values and to control willful human beings with an infinite capacity to rationalize, those moral values must rest on authority independent of men's wills. They must flow from the transcendent supreme being. In short, in the framers' view, free government was only suitable and sustainable for a religious people, a people who recognized that there was a transcendent moral order antecedent to both the state and to man made laws and had the discipline to control themselves according to those enduring principles.
2: And so the source of our rights, it's a natural argument, the source of our rights is God, is not the state. Uh, the protector of our rights, yes, is government in terms of a restraint on other regarding actions, the rule of law. But it's ultimately the source of our freedom is our own ability to restrain our appetites to be more than men without chests uh, rather than the unbridled, uh, immoral, uh, lawless people that we see on the streets of America over the last several weeks demanding uh, or taking uh, those things that are not theirs, not legitimately theirs, on an, illegitimate, uh, on, a, on an illegitimate basis. It's such an important notion to start from a foundation so that you understand the standards by which uh, we should be governed and we should govern ourselves. That's what A.G. Barr provided at Notre Dame, and that's what he's largely provided as attorney general. It's just um, a shame that uh, more elected officials particularly of major cities in America, will not follow suit. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show.
1: You are fake news.